This morning, you may have recognized that there are many vigorous sounds of the covenant among us. For those who are parents tarrying with children with discomfort and noise, be encouraged. As hard and as embarrassing as it may seem, this is God's calling to you right now. For those of you who may find yourself distracted by these sounds, let me encourage you also, it is your burden to carry, that we may see the children of God not only hear God's word, sing God's word, but also be brought to his table of peace through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us here today go before our Lord and ask him for his blessing of the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving that you have called us into your presence. We rejoice in your grace and mercy for the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus' sake. We ask now that your holy word, sharp as a two-edged sword, cut us up, rearrange us, and conform us to your Son, Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as you know, last week we concluded our study in the book of Colossians, and yet we have a few more weeks before we get to the time of Advent, where we will begin to study the life of Christ. And it's been my habit so far in my time here with you that from Advent to Pentecost, I preach on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, so I preach that actual gospel reading that's found in our lectionary. And you might say to yourself, why do we keep doing this? Well, we're going to find out today as we look at the epistle of 2 John, which is just a handful of verses, that the central issue that each one of us are challenged with is actually the doctrines of Jesus Christ. It's the primary error among God's people. And there are some, even in the church, who would lead us astray. So here today, let us hear God's word from 2 John, the entire letter. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive in full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, 
Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things I write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. I've been reflecting on the theme from our recent national council meeting that was held in Moscow, Idaho. This year, the CREC denomination celebrated its 25th anniversary, and the theme was the next 25 years. All the talks that were delivered were filled with both reminders of God's kindness to us over the last 25 years and admonitions for us to be faithful in our obedience to God's word in the years to come. As we listen to our founders and many of our past and present leaders in the CREC, I thought about how quickly we could fall into unfaithfulness and what we must do to prevent this. After all, we are just 25 years old. And a similar denomination that is merely 51 years old has had many congregations that have fallen into the idolatries of our day. They're just twice as old as we are. Now I think it's important that first we do not seek to make the name of CREC to be among the annals of church history. Far better that the name of our denomination and even our church here at this specific congregation be forgotten and that the church of future generations walk in love, demonstrated in obedience to God so that when people see their good works, that people glory in our Father in heaven and in not and how great the CREC or even Christ Reformed Evangelical Church is. When we look and evaluate the failures of churches throughout history, we see in a common error that plagues the church, and it is simply denying the doctrine of Christ. The central theme here in 2 John is this very point. It is the denial of who Christ is. As we look at our passage we see 2 John opens up with the Apostle John identifying himself as the elder. John is speaking with pastoral authority as he addresses his hearers. It's clear that the Apostle John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the author of 2 John. The language and themes are consistent when you compare it to his gospel, to his other letters in 1 and 3 John, and to the book of Revelation. We see that John addresses the elect lady. I believe this to be the church. We see here in the passage it says to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I but also those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love. Some commentators suggest that this is a letter to a specific elect woman. Contextually, it is more likely, and I believe, that it is written to a specific church, a congregation of God's elect. The church, after all, is the bride of Christ, and as such, representatively female. 
Additionally, when we look at verses 6, 8, and 10, the verbs in the Greek are plural, not singular, as God speaks to this elect lady. As we continue, we will see that the letter's instructions and teachings are clearly understood in the context of a pastor speaking to his church. Any pastor rejoices in the generational blessing of faithfulness proceeding from the children within a congregation. That's why my admonition this morning, that when we hear the sounds, when our children are fussy, when there's a noise about us, we should rejoice. We should be full of gladness that God is calling, not just as individuals, not just as adults, but as teens and as children and as infants into his presence to worship. So we see that John, too, is rejoicing in the generational blessing that he sees in the church. We see that in this passage that all others who have known the truth rejoice as well. So it's not just parents and kids, but all those. And why do they rejoice? Because the truth, that is Jesus, abides in us and will be with us forever. Our forefathers rejoice as God keeps his word to be the God of us and to our children and to all who are afar off. We are also reminded of the assurance that Jesus gives us to be with us to the end of the age, confirmed also in Matthew 28, and that Jesus abides with us. How long? To the end of the age. He also chose us before the foundation of the world, and he alone delivered his elect bride from their sins. We can again see confirmation in Acts chapter 4. Now John ends his greeting with a strong blessing. He says, beginning in verse 3, grace, that is, undeserving favor. Then he says, mercy. What is mercy? It's treating the offender better than they deserve. And peace, that is, a state of reconciliation between parties who are enemies. So he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The truth and love provided by the Father through the substitutionary work of Christ is his undeserved favor. God in truth and love has treated us better than we deserve. We all have broken God's law and are enemies with God, and we deserve his wrath. But in Christ Jesus alone, we are saved. We are delivered from this wrath. And it is not of a single good deed that we do that we are reconciled with God. We see that we are given and reminded of the command to love. Verse 4 says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some among your children walking in the truth as we received commandment from the Father. John rejoices that there are children walking in truth. Jesus is the truth. John 14. They are walking, that is, this lady-elect, this church and her children, are walking in a commandment of God. And that commandment is 
that we and they are to love one another. Verse 5 says this, And I now plead with you, lady, I want you to hear this, as I plead with you, church, I plead with you, congregation, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. We see that this is not certainly a new commandment. We see in Leviticus 19.18, so when God establishes his covenant people, and as he is giving the people of Israel direction on how to live, he says in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's funny, he doesn't end it right there. He then says resolutely, this is God speaking. He gives this, don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge, right? But you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, I am Yahweh. Why does Jesus, and then here in this epistle of John, and in so many other epistles, remind us to love one another? It is because in our sinful nature, we look for ways to justify our hatred towards others. Now, when I say it in that way, it sounds really harsh. But you see, when we don't love people as we ought, when we don't love people in our households, in the church, in the greater community, from a place of gratitude for the forgiveness of our sins, it is hatred. We look to hold grudges and not walk with gratitude because, and, and the gratitude comes and should stem out of the great forgiveness of our own sin. We had a debt we could not pay. And what did God do? By His choosing, He gave us undeserved favor. God took us from our state of being His enemy and reconciled us to Himself. We're to love our neighbors with this in mind. The great unbelievable mystery of Christ is that there's no longer any divisions in the people of God. We are one people. Not Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free. Every single one of us are delivered from our sins by Christ alone. And we are, because of this, one body, one congregation, one church. If you're having strife within this body, if you're having difficulty within this body, are you operating from the place of humility and gratitude for God's mighty work in your life as you consider even perhaps a grievous sin of a brother and sister against you? What if your issue is with your parents or your children or with your brothers and sisters in this room in Christ? The root of this sin 
that is not loving, is tied not to loving God in all areas of our life. We do not live in gratitude for his deliverance for us from the bondage of sin. And sin only brings death. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This means in every avenue, in every area, God is over it all, and you are to do all things by loving Him and walking in obedience to Him first. Obedience to God is the fruit of loving Him. Jesus made this real clear in John 14, where He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. We must be reminded to love one another. We all struggle with this, even here in our congregation. And what happens? We begin to, to deceive ourselves that we are somehow superior to one another. We forget who Christ is, what He has done, and what state He has delivered us from. We do not love one another because we forget. We, by nature, deserve wrath, the very curse of God. We cannot deliver ourselves. In ourselves, there is no remedy for sin. There is no salve for sin. Sin is not a disease that can be treated in our strength or in any man but Christ Jesus. We're not sick. Man is not ill. But in our sins and trespasses, we are dead. We must be resurrected and given a new heart. We must be given a new life in Christ. We must be justified or made right in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we learn what it is to love our neighbor by looking at Christ as an example. But we need to recognize that Christ is not simply an example of faith, but he is the object of our faith. He is the one to whom we worship, for he is not just a good example, but he is the one who substituted himself for the wrath that we deserved. So what is it that causes the problems of failure in the church to love one another? The problems of the church to deny Scripture? What is it? Truthfully, it is a deceit of Christ of our own making. Verse 7 says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we've worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. There's a warning for us that there are deceivers who come into the church. I speak this certainly in a broad sense, but we also must be mindful of that here among us. 
these deceivers. What do they do? They bring in false teachings about Christ. 1 Timothy 4.1 tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. When anyone brings a teaching that is not based of the Bible about Jesus Christ, it is the doctrine of demons. There is no neutrality. There is no softer way to put it. You are either with Christ or you are with the doctrine of demons. False teachers look for ways to make Jesus of no consequence by teaching lies about who Jesus is and what he has done. In our sinful natures, this is important, we desire for our own glory and recognition. We don't want to depend on Jesus completely for the forgiveness of our sins. Our itching ears desire to play a part in our own salvation. So when deceivers come, we can fall into the temptations to diminish Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says this, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. What is this transgress? It's to overstep. It's to neglect. It's to violate. Or to go past or pass over without touching it. When you have people that that want to minimize who Christ is, that is, God King. And the God King who came down as a man to take our punishment. Anytime someone starts saying these things aren't true, they didn't happen, right? We cannot neglect that. It is violating the truths of God. So what are we to do? We are to abide, that is, to continue to be present, to hold it, to keep it continually, the doctrines of Christ Jesus. So what are the doctrines of Christ? We said the Apostles' Creed today. The other half of the year, we're going to say the Nicene Creed. We know that, that the doctrines of Christ are outlined those. First, we see that Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that he's not one Lord among many, but he is the King, and he is over all lords. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, where we see that the, the blessing comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this again in 1 Thessalonians 1 where the blessings come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Romans 13, it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We need to recognize that Jesus is king over all. There is no one greater than he. We know that Jesus, because he is Lord over all, all authority in heaven and earth are his. We see this in Matthew 28. And it is prophesied of him in Psalm 2. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He has been the Son of God before all ages. Of course, in the famous verse we see in John 3.16, that God loved the world and he gave what? His only begotten Son. Why? 
so that we can be delivered from our sins and not perish in death. We see in Hebrews 1 again that he is higher than even the angels. In Hebrews 1 it says, For to which of the angels did he, that is God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again in verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So all of heaven is under him, and all of earth is under King Jesus. In Matthew 14, the disciples declare, Truly you are the Son of God. And in Revelation, the book that explains the closing of the Old Covenant and the things to come, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and is, is, is to come. He is the Almighty. Jesus is of one substance with the Father. Jesus is in fact God. John 10 says, I and my Father are one. Colossians 1.15 tells us, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. In Isaiah 44, it says this, Thus Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. We hear remnants or, or reflections of what Jesus says of Himself there from our previous passage in Revelations. And of course, if you're questioning whether He is fully God, consider when we studied Colossians 2, and it says this, For in Him dwells, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is not just a good man, that is simply an example of faith, but rather he is the object of our faith. He is fully God and fully man, and we must worship him. Jesus provided salvation to us by leaving heaven and becoming man. This is really troubling. I know people today who yet, like, I, I can understand, I can believe in the idea of God, but I can't believe that God would come down as a man in this mess, in this body, and live in this life. That's unimaginable to me. We see Paul talks about it, that it's a stumbling block to the Greeks. Interestingly enough, those who I've, who I've seen who embrace this idea hold the Greek philosophers in high accord. They hold them up. And so for them, the idea of the rational, the spiritual, that ethereal thing, that is... That is the great thing. Humanity and creation, that's all bad. But remember, when God created the world and He created the things, He said it was good. But when we sin, we need salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, that is, the elect people, the church of God, but to, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. And you know what's so egregious? There are pastors and teachers throughout churches today who say, oh, we've got to do away with the, the barbarous nature. It's simply, you know, acting and thinking like barbarians to think of the blood and the gore and the death of Jesus. Do away with that. 
I'm not making this up. People are declaring, do away with the cross. Do away with the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. We don't need that man is good enough on his own. That is not so. Acts 4.12 says, there is salva- there, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no salvation outside of Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's important that we remember that he was fully man. By this, he's God and man, but he was born miraculously by a virgin. We see that in Matthew 1. In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus, who being in the form of God, not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Those who deny that Jesus came as a man are denying the doctrines of Christ. He was born fulfilling all of God's promises for our redemption. We see this in Romans 1, that concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That is, He came and He fulfilled all the promises and prophecies. No other person in the world, no other system in the world can change our status as enemies of God, but Jesus Christ Himself. 1 Timothy 2 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Again, Jesus came as a man. He was crucified. He died and was buried. So what? We see that in Matthew 27, he was crucified. In Mark 15, We see that he's buried in a clean tomb. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, that is Jesus, was buried and then he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. We need to remember that Jesus came as a real man, not not considering his place as God as something to be held on to, but he laid aside that glory that he might take the wrath and punishment that we deserve. But Jesus didn't just rise again from the dead. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3 that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him, he sits on the throne He ascended to the place and He rules heaven and earth from the right hand of God. And this isn't a temporary thing. Luke 1.33 tells us, And He, that is Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That is, the peoples of God. That includes the church. And of His kingdom there will be no end. False teachings about Christ as God and man attacks against Christ being God and man began during the life of Christ. In other words, those that were there seeing the miracles of Christ Jesus wouldn't believe. Why? Why didn't the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of Israel and those that clamored after those folks, why did they not believe? Because it was going to disrupt their power, their means, all the things they were doing to obtain mercy from God. 
after all the miracles and fulfillment of the words of God, they fell to the first temptation and they said, has God really said? Did God really say all these prophecies? Are you really fulfilling all these things? We see here in John 2 that the deceivers were continuing with these false charges that he was God, that he was the Savior to the world. And what were they doing? They were offering another gospel. Thus, as this word says here in John 2, they are antichrist. They are against Christ. These teachings have reemerged again and again throughout history. That's why we have the Nicene Creed. And then we went into the other ditch, and we had the Council of Chalcedon. And then again, it raised its ugly head in a broad way during the Renaissance. And then again, during the Enlightenment. And then again in the 20th century with textual criticism. And let's find the real Jesus. And they search to minimize Jesus to a good man to follow. They speak of Jesus' doctrines of love and forgiveness. And of course, they speak of it in such a way as they have defined it. And they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, King, Lord, Judge, or his substitutionary death for our sins. People of God, the elect lady and her children here in this church, do not be deceived. Jesus is Lord, and he is the only way to be reconciled and to be at peace with God. The charge to not let people hold these false teachings in your house is a directive not to allow people like this, people that hold these false teachings about who Christ was, into membership of our congregations. And this is really important, and certainly not to be pastors or elders in our church. One of the really important things that our presbytery, that's the elders and pastors of our churches and our denomination, is to guard the pulpits of our churches. Councils are set up committees that go and learn the life and doctrine of those that are going to preach the word. They're examined. They're studied. They're met with again and again. And then after the committee gives a recommendation that they think they're ready, they're brought before an entire presbytery where again the committee asks questions and then it's opened up to everyone. When I did it, there were 48 men there examining me took some time and that was after all the other preliminary steps this is simply to say this is important to guard too many who are teaching in seminaries today and are sending men into the pulpits of the churches don't hold to the doctrines of Christ we're commanded don't let them in our churches and those who support them Finally, we see the unity of the church. He brings it full circle in verse 12. And he says, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face. Now listen here, that our joy may be full. And then he says, The children of your elect sister greet you. And it closes with, Amen, or so be it in God. In closing, John points to the joy of the people of God 
is made complete when we are face to face. This is a reminder that we are to worship together face to face. The church is face to face with God in Christ as we come to God's table of peace. And we are reminded also that there is unity as we remember today that our sister churches are worshiping God all around the world today because of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we confess that so often we fall short in believing and remembering all you have done for us. Help us, God, by the power of your Spirit, because you have forgiven our sins by Jesus and the work he did on the cross and in being resurrected and ascending to the throne. Help us, O Lord, that we remember the debt that we could not pay, that while we were yet sinners that you died for us. Help us, Lord Jesus, in remembering this. Be full of gratitude towards you and to love one another. And Lord Jesus, may we not believe any teaching that con contradicts your word about who you are as God, man, and Savior, the only atoning sacrifice for us. Give us faith that we may believe. May we love one another because you first loved us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.